we have an incredible ability to talk ourselves into some of the most crazy purchases. We, we can make decisions that are not driven by well-thought-out processes, but because we just saw something. You ever pulled up in your car and suddenly you see somebody else's car, maybe it's the same model, but it's a recent model, and suddenly it has features and it, it's clean and it looks great and it's got a new car smell and they're sitting with that model car and you look at your car and it's not clean and it smells like a family and you, it doesn't have CarPlay in it and it doesn't have all the different accessories that you want. And now it's possible to go into a thought process that says, how do I upgrade that? And this has happened to me all the time, not maybe with a car, but when it comes to seeing the latest iPhone. I'm like, well, that camera is better. Have you noticed they sell the iPhone now based on the better camera? We are carrying cameras that are better than anything that anybody's ever carried in the history of the world, and yet this camera is slightly better. And they give numbers. You know, it's got so many megapixels, and we don't even know what they mean. We just know this more and more is better, right? So now we've got to upgrade. My phone still makes phone calls, but I want something new. This is what happens when we get caught up in this rationale. And what it's led us to, and what the, the reason the video is so funny, and I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, you would love for the United States government to watch that video, wouldn't you? Okay, it doesn't matter who, who you voted for, both parties do this. You gotta stop spending. Because we've got a problem in this country, and there's a problem in my life, and perhaps it's in your life, especially if we want to make Jesus Lord of our lives, is that debt is a problem. The struggle is we don't think debt is a problem. We live in a world now where debt has become normal. We used to, I'm old enough to remember, there was a whole nother approach to buying stuff. This approach, usually you did it with some kind of appliance. If you found an appliance that you wanted to buy, you went down to the appliance store, you picked it out, you said, I'm going to purchase that, and then you begin to make payments on it. They put the appliance in the back of the store, they waited, you made a payment every month till you paid it off. Then you went and picked it up. Does anybody remember what that was called? Layaway. Find me somebody doing layaway these days. We've gone from layaway to one-click purchasing. Because we don't have the patience anymore. You know the difference in that? When you got it paid off and then you brought the appliance into your home, do you know what the appliance was? Brand new. Now when you pay something off, you don't know where it is. It's broke. You've upgraded. And debt has become a problem. See, the problem is that we think that debt's not the problem. It's lifestyle is the problem. And we've got a lifestyle problem, not a debt problem. And so to fix the lifestyle problem, we go into consuming. We buy more. We collect more. We try to gather more because we're trying to fight a different problem. And... God 
is concerned about this because he knows where this leads because he sees debt as a problem. In a second, we're going to see how much he considers it. Because God knows that what we struggle with is this need to always upgrade, always pursue more. And so God has these words for us. And I'm going to tell you, as I read these words, and this whole sermon today, I, I realize that this is one of those sermons that, depending on the situation where you are in your life, this one may make you squirm a whole lot. But I want you to trust my heart this morning that I am not trying to pour guilt and shame on you. That's not my goal. That's not God's goal. You can look all through the Gospels that tell the teachings of Jesus and never once does Jesus try to use guilt and shame to motivate people. Now, he confronts some hard truths, but he confronts them because there's a freedom there and a liberty there that he desperately wants. Remember, this whole series is not what God wants from you. He doesn't want more of your money. He wants something for you, and that's peace. And that's why today, as we go through this, I'm not trying to pour salt into a wound. I'm not trying to heap on more guilt because you may be upside down in your finances. I just want us to understand that there's a way that God is calling us forward. And even if you are upside down in your finances right now, if you will begin to trust God, you will begin to see Him work in your life and bring you back to peace. So as we think about our debt problem that we have, I'm going to ask you to um, write this down, Proverbs 22.7, or highlight it. And don't miss the power of these words as you hear what was written so many years ago, centuries and centuries ago, these words, and here's what they mean today. Proverbs 22.7, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Now this verse gets translated a few different ways. Sometimes you'll see the word servant in there. This comes from the most recent translation, NIV slave. NIV used to have the word servant in there. And then after they did some consideration as language changes and develops, they decided that servant wasn't strong enough. Because it didn't communicate what was going on in the scripture. And you see the word slave there because whether it's servant or slave, it's not simply someone that applies for a position in a household that's going to be a caretaker, as we would consider a butler or a maid or a steward in a, in a household. This, in the context of where this was written, there was what was this indentured servanthood, this indebted servanthood that you could, if you own the landowner... If you owed the lender so much that you just could not pay it back, your, your, the strategy for paying back was you became a servant to them. In exchange for whatever you owed them monetarily, you owed them a season and years of your life. Much more akin to this idea of being a slave. This is why God describes debt as slavery. And it described the idea with change, and there is a burden that's being borne out 
in our world. So we've got to pay attention because God is not trying to make you feel more guilty. He's trying to understand there's a power at work here. And even though you may just take on one link at a time, as it begins to develop and as it begins to increase in your life, it becomes much more of a slavery. And some of you understand this. Because you're already into that, and now there are calls coming into your home where it's debt collection agencies attempting to reach you. And you're using the caller ID, and you're scanning your iPhone before you, your cell phone before you pick it up. Because now there's not peace, because you have all these conversations. And you have all the stress, they don't. Have you ever called your credit card company? They don't, when I call them, they don't say, well, Scott, it's good to talk to you today. How's the life been? Their question is always, what's your account number? I'm nothing but a number to them. There's no feeling or emotion coming from that direction towards me, but from me to them, it's stress, isn't it? It's worry. It's anxiety. God is saying, and this is why we need to pay attention. He's saying, this is what debt leads to. This is where debt takes you. And a loving God that wants the best for you. See, this is one of those situations where you may not yet believe that there's a God in heaven that's like a loving, good father that wants the absolute best for you. But this is an area of life in your finances that you can test God and you can see. And so if, if there was a loving Father in heaven that wanted the best for you, what do you think he would say to us? If he, we're his children he loves, he would say, pay attention to this. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Do not try to water that down any. Don't try to explain it away. This is what our Heavenly Father is asking. Because He knows that we have a struggle. He knows that there is a certain sense of discontentment. And we need to pay attention to this word. Discontentment in our life. Because that's what happens when your neighbor pulls up in the new car. Suddenly we have a discontentment. That's what happens when you walk into the store to buy one thing, but suddenly you see 40 other things that you need, right? Has anybody ever bought something from a store that you didn't even know they made that thing when you walked into the store? But now that you see that thing, you can't live without that thing because you have a discontentment. It's like the old song, I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and I try and I try. That describes exactly what's going on in our culture right now because everything in marketing is designed to increase your discontentment. You yet to see a commercial that says, life's good, enjoy. Because it's designed to make you think that you're living without something. Something's at risk. Something should be bothering you. You've got a problem that hadn't been solved yet. You need to be discontent about this. Millions of dollars will be spent on the commercials for the game tonight. Because they want to increase your 
discontentment. So what was a loving, loving Heavenly Father say to us? So I want you to turn to Matthew, uh, 1 Timothy. It's a letter that, that's in your New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to camp out there for our, the rest of our study today. And there's, Paul is the one that wrote this. And Paul's the one that wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote letters to churches and people attempting to follow Jesus and make Jesus Lord of their life. And so most of his letters, you may have heard him referred to as epistles, but most of his letters are designed to help us understand what it's like to live with Jesus as Lord of our life. How do we follow this Jesus that lays claim to us? And so they are incredibly practical. And so in 1 Timothy, in this particular part of the letter, he is talking about our wealth. And we're going to walk through these verses. And again, you've got to find these incredibly relevant. If nothing else, you should at least be surprised by how much they tie in to our exact situation today, even though they were written 2,000 years ago. He begins this way. But godliness with contentment. Now, discontentment is the problem. He's going to give us the answer with contentment. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pause there. We're going to take each of these first three verses individually here. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He's saying, if you want to know how to run up the score in your life, consuming and buying and purchasing and trying to affect your discontentment is not the way. But if you will take godliness, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but if you take this idea of godliness and you will pair it with contentment and a level of satisfaction, there's how you get on the scoreboard. There's how you make a difference in your life. He goes on to say this, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of it. Now, nobody wrote that down. Because it's obvious, right? But we forget. Somewhere between birth and death, we start thinking that if I accumulate enough, I just may get to take some of it with me. Never seen the hearse pulling the U-Haul. But what Paul is saying is, be careful, because if you're trying to tip the ledger of your life towards some type of satisfaction, and your strategy for it is going to be consumption, buying, purchasing, gathering stuff, collecting treasure, he said, then you're going to walk out of this world with nothing. It's going to be a zero on the ledger, and perhaps it's going to be a loss because you pursued the wrong thing. This is incredibly important for us to get our heads around. For we brought nothing to the world, and we take nothing out of it. And then he gives us the third verse. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, in my Bible, I wrote, says who? Can you imagine that? I'm just going to be content with food clothing. Now, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I live indoors. I'm grateful that I have food. I'm grateful that I have clothing. 
But I've never thought about that making me content. I've never woken up a day in my life going, well, that's enough. I'm good. You know. Now, whether we wake up that way or not, we wish our children would, don't we? We wish everybody else around us would wake up like that. So, Paul, I'm not arguing with you, but you're going to have to give us a little bit more because that doesn't sound like a strategy to be content. But what Paul is trying to highlight in us is this level of discontentment. And so Paul gives us the answer, and I'm going to go on to verse 9. Paul gives the answer, and now he starts laying out a certain warning. He said, you don't bring anything into the world, you don't take anything out of it. But there's contentment between the two. How do we get there, Paul? Because you're saying godliness and contentment, what do we need to do? And he begins with a warning first. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, just pause for a second. Because if we move on too fast, you miss the power of this. Listen to the words that Paul has chosen to describe this. These are not just boring words. They are very dramatic words. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap into many and foolish, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul's giving us a warning. He's saying there is a power in your money. And it is so easy to fall into this trap of discontentment. That what you're doing is you're pursuing, trying to appease this this chase, this appetite. He begins to describe it as an appetite. You're going to chase this. He goes, that's a trap. And it leads to harm. And this is where some of you know that because you've lived over in this house for so long with this set of Joneses, that there is stress and there is anxiety and there are fights now. The marriage is frayed because of the finances. There's a danger here. There's a burden here. You're not freed up. Maybe it's not even that you're fighting with someone, but you're not freed up. There's a moment somewhere in your, as you go through your week that you want to be generous. Maybe it's with an organization that you're sponsoring at, at, um, in your workplace. It's something that's going on at school, and you want to be generous to that. But you realize that before you write that check or send that money or release those funds, that, oh, wait a minute, I've got an obligation over here because I'm upside down, and I can't be generous the way I want. There's a trap that you've fallen into. He goes on to say this. For the love of money is a, is a root of all kinds of e- evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, listen to the words. God is going, listen, 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 listen. Pay attention to this. It matters. There's a danger to not listening to this. And he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says, the root, going to the very base of it, the very core, the foundation. He says, there's where a lot of it begins. And it's a trap. Be careful. 
Don't go there. And then he has this great phrase, for the love of money. Now, some of you have heard that phrase, love of money is the root of all evil, and you didn't even know that was from the Bible. This is where it comes from. It comes from Scripture. And, and the struggle with this is many of you would, you know, I know it's church and sometimes it's really hard to be honest here. But if we were to say, raise your hand if you've ever loved money. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> now, some of you may say, well, you know, we dated for a while. But we have a love of money. And here's how we know. Because it drives us to do things. <clears throat> so, public service announcement for all the guys this week is Valentine's. But whether you're a guy or you're a girl, maybe you're at an age where it's at least at one time in your life, maybe it was in high school, maybe it was in college, maybe it's been even more recently, that you fell head over heels in love with someone, and that special someone. And it consumed all of your thinking. It consumed all of your thought. And you spent an unbelievable amount of time trying to figure out how to connect with them. How to let them know that you're interested. How to be with them. Some of you, if you dated long distance, you could figure out a way that you could drive for hours just to spend minutes. You, you learned how to play the piano or sing a song or you went out and did something crazy like you bought flowers, you know, I mean, just way over the top. But you did things that were not rational, but they were extravagant, right? Because you were in love. How many times have we done the same thing with our money? Because we fell for something, we fell in love with something, that we wanted to possess, and we wanted to collect, or we wanted to consume. And so we go through all this irrational and extravagant logistics. We start trying to figure out the numbers. We try to figure out how to float the loan. We try to figure out where to borrow the cash. How much can we max out the credit cards on? Because we're doing something that's not rational, but it's extravagant because we've fallen in love what Paul, what Paul is saying is saying this, and here's what I want you to take away. Left unchecked, your possessions will possess you. Left unchecked, your possessions will possess you. The borrower is a slave to the lender. There is a possession that takes place there. Paul goes on. Now he's going to give us an antidote for this. Okay, Paul's laid out, here's your problem, here's your struggle. But Paul, you've got to give us an action to work on now because I'm feeling trapped and all you've done is identify the trap. Jump with me down to verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Flee from this. And then pursue something. See, Paul understands something that we need to understand. Your discontentment is an appetite. And so we see something that we want and then we pursue it because we think we can satisfy this appetite. 
My mom was famous for saying, if I wanted a snack in the afternoon, said, no, you can't have a snack because you'll do what? You'll ruin your appetite. Mom was a liar. I never ruined an appetite in my life. And if I ever did, I was pretty sure there's one right behind it coming along to take its turn. No, what happens when you're kind of hungry and then you start taking that first bite, you realize, no, I'm really hungry. Because what you're not doing, you're not satiating the appetite, you're waking it up, right? You're turning it on. And as we pursue with upgrade and the newer, the better, the bigger, the faster, whatever it is, there's an appetite that we're waking up. And Paul says you've got to treat it like an appetite and you need to redirect your appetite. So instead of, of pursuing those things that are a trap, I want you to pursue your relationship with God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Redirect your appetite towards a relationship with Jesus. Invest in that. This does not happen overnight. This is not some just take a pill and now you're cured. This is a waking up every single day. saying I'm going to pursue these things. I'm going to say no to one appetite and develop another appetite. I'm going to wake up another appetite in my life. An appetite you may not even know you have. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because you do have an appetite for a relationship with God. But many of us just haven't taken the time to wake it up yet. Paul jumps jump down with me to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command those who are rich. Okay? So here's the truth. If you drove here today, you're rich. If you're not living wondering, am I going to eat today? You're rich. In the context of where Paul was writing this letter to, the people that originally got this, if you had more than simply your daily bread, you're rich. So for all of us who are rich, we do not put our hope in the wealth, which is so uncertain, but we put our hope in God. This is directing that appetite. Then he, he ends this way. Command them to do good, and look at his language here, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now here is the simple principle, but it is powerful behind it. The way you break treasure's power over you is to be generous with your treasure. If you become generous, even if it doesn't feel good at first... Remember, we learned last week that your treasure and your heart are linked and you can begin to direct your treasure certain places and that begins to change your heart. And so what Paul is saying and what God is wanting us to understand is that if your possessions have power over you, you become generous and it breaks that power. It ends that. 
you start sharing whatever it is you have. If, you, if you've been blessed with money, you begin to share your wealth. If you've been blessed with things, you begin to share your things. If you've got a car that could be used and, and shared, you do that. If you've got a tool that can be used and shared, you do that. If you've got a skill or a gift that can be shared, you do that. Whatever it is, you get in the place where I, I am now sending out my blessings. I'm not trying to gather them in, but I'm sending them out. This will radically change your relationship with your treasure and with your God. You put yourself in that place and you begin to pray each and every day, God, how can I be generous with my stuff? That's a prayer that God will drop into your life and he will answer. Because you have now created space for him to step in and make a difference. Got a gift for you today. As you go out, on the table in the foyer, we'll have these cards. It's a card that simply on the back says, Proverbs 22, 7, The borrower is a slave to the lender. And we've tied just a little chain to it as a reminder. Not to make you feel more guilty, but to put this into a place as, as God, as a loving Heavenly Father to you says, Please be careful with this. Pursue me, not the things. And then let me bless you with the things. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is so much easier to talk about than to put into place. So I want to confess my times where I have allowed my appetite to consume Allow me to do the irrational, extravagant, pursuing those things in my life, the treasures and the possessions. Father, for any person here, that that's their story as well. That perhaps they're upside down and they're feeling the chains of this debt already. This slavery that it brings. Would you break into their life with hope and encouragement and begin to lead them out. Father, would you show us all how to be more generous with our stuff and in the process discover you. Father, I thank you that you're such a good heavenly Father that you did not even hang on to the treasure of your own Son, but you gave him freely so that we may have relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.